Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagolani-Albov. Today, we are really excited to be joined by two academic colleagues that we had the pleasure to meet at the Development Days Conference, uh, which happened here in Helsinki in February of 2022. We are going to be joined by Syed Mustafa Ali from the Open University and Dan McQuillan from Goldsmiths University of London. I don't want to take up too much time because they are going to talk on a subject that I am so interested in that I don't even want to waste a single second not discussing this with them. So let's just dive right in today. This is a mystery. You guys don't even quite know what it is if you haven't read the show notes. But um, without further ado, Mustafa, would you like to tell our guests who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Mustafa. I'm based in the School of Computing and Communications at the Open University in the UK. And I convene a group called Critical Information Studies, uh, which is essentially charged with trying to explore computing and ICTs from various critical perspectives. Uh, In my own work, it really focuses on developing two strands of thought, one of which is what I call decolonial computing, which is the application of critical race theory and decolonial thought to a range of computing and ICT phenomena. And the other is an idea which uh, I refer to something along the lines of algorithmic racism otherwise. So it's trying to think about lingerie processes of racialization and their entanglement most recently with technological phenomena. Hi, I'm Dan McQuillan. Uh, I'm at Goldsmiths University of London in the computing department. Uh, I'm a lecturer in creative and social computing. And uh, like Mustafa, you know, I am a critical uh, student of current technological developments. My particular interest at the moment is sort of AI, uh, what's its social impacts, um, and what do we do about them? Fantastic. Thank you both so much for coming on. I mean, it was such a, a pleasure to meet you both at the conference and to see your fantastic presentation. To get into the background a little bit more before we even go forward, how did you two come together over this? Because, you know, uh, Sophia and I have been interested in this sort of stuff and like we're always looking to meet new people around it. And so how did you two come to be uh, collaborating? Dan, if I may, I'll try to respond to that one. At least I'll give you my version of events. Maybe Dan has a different story to tell. So I think it maybe goes back to uh, a a year long, if not a year and a half long series of events organized by colleagues at uh, Cambridge University in something which was known as the Histories of AI seminar. It was a a Mellon seminar uh, funded project. And they were exploring AI in terms of what they were then calling, I think, uh, the genealogies of power. So looking at the history of AI, its geography, so how AI is implicated and and develops differently at different places uh, across the world and trying to tease out some of the entanglements with power. And I think in some of the sessions that were taking place and almost all of them, if not all of them took place online as a result of the COVID pandemic, Dan and I were in the same space and uh, maybe at that time kind of uh, tacitly performing something like a tag team of critique coming from what can only be described, I think, as some form of Luddite orientation. So 
you know, I saw Dan putting interesting comments in the chat and thinking, hmm, I need to follow up on this. And I'm hoping that Dan saw or heard me say some things which were interesting to him, which made him think likewise. And I think then eventually we found out that geographically, we actually live very close to each other. So apart from having some discussions, you know, over Zoom and, and kind of teasing out our respective positions on various things, we actually finally had a cup of coffee together and sat down to talk Luddism. Oh my goodness, a cup of coffee, like actually in the real world, how apropos of the subject. Uh, Dan, do you do you agree with the story that we just told? Anything to add? No, no, that's a good account. And I mean, coffee shops in London have actually a quite a long history, uh, particularly in the 17th century, of being dens of subversion. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good start. I mean, th th those seminars are very useful because uh, I think they encapsulated some of the things that might be part of our broader conversation, which is that they were very diverse for starters, although they were all focused on the on the, you know, the histories, you know, with, with the emphasis on the S, I think, as most of would probably highlight, you know, the, the varying perspectives on AI. Um, they, they, they just drew together a very eclectic bunch of people who are also prepared to have kind of, you know, robust and interesting chats about stuff. And, you know, they, they had these two key qualities, which most of us already mentioned, which is power and history. And, and I think... For me, um, you know, those seminars in general, but also hooking up with Mustafa around this particular idea of resistance and, and Luddism, which we'll get to. I have one foot in the, let me say, the industry world of discussions around ethical AI and things like that, and you know, it's it's, it's deadening and stultifying, and um, and and basically will be, as you know, historically ir irrelevant. Um, uh, or is even worse than that. It's even a, a kind of form of ethics washing and all this stuff, which people are coming to realize now. But it was, you know, th this is, is is coming to awareness that these things are the case, that the more radical perspectives are needed. But for the last few years, it's been like, you know, wading through mud to try and get attention focused on, on really important structural issues of justice. And in that seminar, it seemed to um, accelerate that process, I think in general, but obviously the conversation between me and Mustafa in particular. So we really got past a lot of the um, wishy-washy stuff and started to talk, you know, both around the real histories of power of these things and also the possibilities to some extent that history offers about resistance, because at the end of the day, where there is repression, there will always be resistance. Thank you so much for that. And I mean, I think that you are, you're absolutely right. And I think this goes perfectly into uh, the next question, which, you know, for, for our listeners at home, they might not be familiar with Luddism or what Luddites are. I mean, they might have the kind of general conception of like being anti-technology or, or something like that. But I think most people probably don't realize that there is a historical basis and context. So what do you mean when you're talking about Luddism? Like, what is this and how does this apply today? But I mean, I can say a bit about the historical Luddites, which is, it's a relatively short historical moment, but I think a, a kind of pivotal one. People would, might vary a bit on the dates, but you're probably looking 1811 to 1816, something like that. So a matter of a few short years and um, a relatively confined triangle area of North England, um, a sort of Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, that kind of area. Uh, but it happens to be where you had a conflation of changes that were incredibly important historically and also incredibly resonant with our moment right now. Those kind of changes were, for the Luddites of that time, the uh, non-consensual introduction of technologies that led to an absolute change in their own, not just conditions of work, but sort of conditions of life, uh, in, in as much as 
it uh, took both work and control, even more importantly, away from them um, as to their trade, their trade of the, the sort of weaving and cotton trade, the fabric trade, the production of cloth. That was their specialism and the introduction of steam powered and water mill powered automated machinery for um, activities like shearing and cropping was the beginnings of the factory system. Really, that's that's one of the historical significances of it. I think there are some other uh, moments that, that are important or aspects of that moment that are important to bring out that these uh, workers, these uh, independent tradespeople were struggling against the big, this, this sort of first automation and this introduction of you know, what, what became a whole new historical mode of, of production, the industrial mode of production. You know, what we're also doing so um, at a time of, of, of extreme precarity anyway, right? There's post the Napoleonic Wars. So England was in debt, um, there was high unemployment, and there was already a lot of uncertainty around the conditions of people's lives. And along came this technology and massively accelerated it. It accelerated it in a way that changed all of the social relations, all of the relations of people in terms of how they would make a living, what was their status in society, how they related to the idea of self-governance, which is pretty much how these trades had operated before. So it was a total change in social relations. It was forced on them in a time of existing precarity, kind of under crisis conditions, I would say. So I just want to footnote that, that these are very similar to our own times. You know, we've got um, another wave of technological innovation, if we can call it that, um, which has, I believe, um, kind of similar aims, if it's right to give it aims. There's a similar teleology around this new wave of technology um, in terms of the social relations and it's also happening at a time of, well, multiple overlapping crises. Um, so there are, there, there are those, if, if no other, there are those immediate resonances with our time. Anyway, um, I'll, I'll pass it on to Mustafa to give it some of the other dimensions that we tend to focus on. Thanks a lot, Dan. Um, I guess the only things I'd really like to add to what you've said thus far are to draw attention to maybe the opening question that Christopher has uh, presented us with, which is in terms of how Luddism tends to be thought about as an anti-technology stance. So I want to put that one to rest uh, in the sense that the Luddites were not anti-technology per se, rather they were anti a specific technology and I would suggest a specific ordering logic or rather reordering logic that was being introduced into the social fabric. I mean, Dan has rightly already made reference to the introduction of the factory system and the industrial mode of production. So this, I would suggest that this constitutes something like a step change in terms of how the social fabric, the economic fabric, the political fabric is transformed uh, through the introduction of the factory system, industrialization, and I would suggest going further than the process of industrialization and ordering logic, which is industrialism. It's also really important to understand, and just to reinforce this point, I think that the stock phrase to think about when thinking about Luddism goes back to the Luddites themselves, and that is opposition to machinery that is harmful to commonality or the commonality. And I think there are three terms at play there. One, machinery, two, harm, and three, commonality, or what might be for some commentators, 
be the commons, if you like. So a, a kind of sense of shared ownership of, if you like, uh, resources, mode of production, mode of distribution, etc. So I think these these are really important to, uh, you know, as I said, try to put to rest the caricature, the distortion, the misrepresentation that Luddism was a code word and the Luddites represented an anti-technology stance. That is historically, factually, uh, and demonstrably false. And it really constitutes a slur. And I think the fact that Luddism, Luddite, has become you know, a dirty word, although that is changing, I think. And maybe Dan might want, want to talk about that a little bit further on. But generally, it's been perceived as a dirty word, um, a word of, you know, uh, approbation that, you know, this is essentially about people who are, in quotes, committed to blocking progress, development, etc. Although for me, progress, development, and its cognates, these are all highly contested uh, terms and terrains. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'd just maybe like to throw those in initial points out there, to, you know, to build on what Dan has said, but also to add, and maybe this is the appropriate point in the conversation uh, to introduce this. My kind of contribution to this is to ask questions about what would happen if we um, shifted the site of Luddite action to elsewhere in what we might call the world system. So I talk about what I refer to as a fugitive decolonial Luddism, which is what happens when we talk about Luddism taking place in the peripheries of the world system, the margins at the borders, um, but also with a commitment to a fugitive orientation. In other words, um, not just attempting resistance to the rollout of this industrialized logic. And for me, this industrialized logic is always entangled with capitalism, but it's a capitalism that is always from its inception with the colonial project, which I suggest goes back not to the 18th century, but rather goes back to uh, the late 15th century with the so-called Colombian voyages of discovery, which were really essentially genocidal conquest. Um, that project was racialized from the get-go and, and in terms of structuring uh, labor relations, uh, how the knowledge and orientation of people in the periphery of the world system were regarded. Um, the initial driver I would suggest was actually a form of uh, religious dispensation and maybe we could get into that if you find that interesting and if, if it's relevant. But fundamentally it takes on the form of a racialized logic. So capital more specifically, capitalism cannot really be understood unless we're talking about racial capitalism. But by the time of the Industrial Revolution, you're talking about an industrialized racial capitalism. So thinking about what's going on in the peripheries, at the margins, at the borders of the world system, I think transforms what Luddism might mean, could mean, should mean, and uh, to do work for what Franz Fanon referred to as the wretched of the earth in the world system. Thank you for elucidating on the term a bit more. You know, I have to admit, in my own life, I think I've been guilty of 
potentially using the term in a way that's synonymous with some of these like inappropriate uses that you were just telling us about. Because I think in like the day to day, you know, there is a connection of the term to like, oh, anti-technology, because, you know, we like to paint with broad brushes, don't we? (laughs) Um, Not us. We like to get really detailed on things. But in general society, I think painting with a broad brush happens sometimes. So you'd mentioned that the term was changing a little bit. Dan, would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about that? Like, how has the term changed and how does it apply in this sense? Sure. I think, uh, well, I think, you know, just following on from your comment, I think people do like to, you know, use easy stereotypes and, and reach for ready-made ideas. But I think probably with Luddism, as with many other ideas that are sort of equally important right now, uh, this was a process of pretty deliberate historical suppression. And, um, you know, it, it was suppression suppressed very strongly at the time, of course. But also I think that the history of it has been strongly suppressed, you know, um, both consciously and, and, and sort of perhaps unconsciously, in as much as Luddism represented a, a direct challenge to the very idea of industrial progress really you know which is something that I think in, in connects to um, some of the exalt products sort of broader concerns and and so that was written out of his, not just written out of history but denigrated and I think what's happened is probably um, a, a combination of the the amplification of the effects of technology on everyday life is one of the reasons why tech criticism or even now in uh, in some parts of the discourse and particularly in the USA they talk about this term tech clash so this what's happened as a result of you know maybe the last 10 years maybe the last 5 years of uh, realizing that the uh, what comes associated with uh, you know, a pervasive intrusion of technological infrastructures and data extraction and analysis in every aspect of life is not beneficent, you know, is not even productive and has many other consequences that people can see, you know, in their own life, people can see now in the realms of um, sort of politics. So people have a question themselves, people in general, as well as academics, have many more questions about technology. This is a time when uh, ideas of people who question technology are going to to resurface again. And I think in particular in relation to my focus of study, which is AI, artificial intelligence, so-called, that is the the forward crest of that of that current wave of technology innovation, also the forward crest of of um, causing alarm in people to to look back at um, uh, to, to see a technology that seems to be uh, you know e- even at best almost almost certainly um, harmful to the commonality in ways that we can't even measure, and so people are first perhaps turning to things that our system offers on a routine basis oh we need to reform this we need to introduce a little bit of regulation here you know we need to um you know tweak this bit that we've already been through i think one wash cycle of this idea of reform um it has achieved absolutely nothing that's very clear perhaps perhaps this uh situates within resonant larger processes where I think people are going through something very similar and it is very connected as well around climate change and you know, people are looking at climate change and our necessity for reforming our ways of life and our ways of reproducing our social systems realizing again that there's a critical and crisis point and realizing again that many of the reformist proposals most of which rely on high technology if not even AI are not going to solve the problem so, so I think it's just also very noticeable, you know, that, that I mean, myself and Mustafa have been really pushing the idea of Luddism as a both a very specific historical resistance and a broader critical framework for action. And it turns out that many other people are too. You know, there's a, there's a slew of books and the term Luddism is suddenly back on the agenda uh, in the same way that COVID brought the term mutual aid back on the agenda, you know, another form of suppressed 
uh, sort of political dynamic. These, these, the, the crises we're facing are so so urgent that I think these things are. Um, they're not only back on the table, and people are not only looking at these as historical examples, but they're trying to tease out what are the relevances for now. Yes, the Luddites used hammers, and I'd be the last one to say that the, the use of a hammer has completely gone out of relevance. I wouldn't say, and I suspect Mustafa would concur with this, that actually we wouldn't say that machine breaking is, is something that could never be considered now. You know, that was what the Luddites did. They took hammers into the steam mills and smashed the machines and sometimes they burned the places down. I'm not suggesting people should rush out and burn down data centers or something like that. But the idea of uh, direct resistance to machinery is not something that should be off the agenda. But also people are trying to tease out what does, what actually does direct action offer to the crisis in which technology plays a key part? What do other aspects of the Luddite resistance talk to us about? What is their incredible and obvious solidarity and mutual aid which was the foundation of their resistance and their resistance was short but but incredible it was so powerful that in order to suppress it the british government brought more troops into that area of north england than they had fighting napoleon at the time it was an incredibly powerful resistance that was driven by solidarity and mutual aid and perhaps slightly more abstractly but i think very relevantly to now what the, the luddites had they didn't call it this you know it was a kind of infrastructural politics they weren't asking questions about parliamentary representation they were asking direct questions about the mode of um, technological infrastructure in society and that is a question that's at the center of our times as well i'd just like to maybe add a few points to what Dana has quite lucidly just presented. And that is um, maybe one thing, which is the whole discourse of AI ethics, which I think he's kind of framed in terms of tech washing or ethics washing, et cetera. It's, it's really important, I think, for people to understand the genealogy of that discourse, which is kind of all over the place in relation to discussions about datification, algorithmization, machine learning, uh, surveillance capitalism etc and you know i mean we don't have time maybe to get into the kind of precise details of this but i don't think it's very difficult to uh follow the money trace the the, the corporate players and and discover the extent to which major players in big tech i'm talking the googles i'm talking you know uh microsoft etc that they are largely responsible for funding, driving, pushing the discourse of AI ethics. And so there is a corporate um, ethics entanglement from the get-go. It's not something that's kind of uh, being fitted on later. It's literally that is there from the get-go. So I think that's really important to think about that, not just in terms of the entanglement of big tech corporations with the ethics discourse, but thinking about that through the lens of political economy and political ecology, because I think Dan has rightly pointed to the idea of, you know, climate change, the existential threat, if not crisis associated with that, and how, you know, technologies like AI, machine learning, deep learning, are constantly being touted as uh, tech solutionist uh, interventions to try to mitigate the effects of those so-called problems, if not crises. But I'd like to maybe just add another point, and that is what Dan has been referring to as kind of reformist approaches. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that framing, but I'd like to maybe shift it into a slightly different frame, and that is regulation. So, you know, the idea of actually having uh, policy drafted, having that rolled out at state level, possibly even at interstate level through various institutions, whether it's, 
you know, debated at the United Nations or elsewhere. And just give one kind of concrete example about where I think regulation reaches its limit point and where the kind of Luddite intervention, the direct action intervention of Luddism needs to be, at least from my perspective, possibly our shared perspective, considered as beyond the limit point of regulation. So, I mean, some of your listeners might recall that there was a debate that took place at the United Nations last year regarding, uh, you know, attempting to move forward on an international ban and the development of a treaty against the development and deployment of lethal autonomous weapon systems, you know, essentially the kind of drone tech, etc. And it ended in failure. They, they couldn't reach uh, an agreement, uh, a treaty couldn't be enforced. And what would it also mean to enforce a treaty in a world system where you have various uh, stakeholders, players differently positioned, some of whom enjoy something like a, a hegemonic, if not a near hegemonic status and are capable of veto. So the way I think about this in, in kind of simple terms is that treaty might be rolled out and it might be you know, there may be multiple signatories, but the hegemon is going to exercise what the political theorist Carl Schmitt referred to as, you know, sovereignty through enacting the state of exception. I mean, it's, I, I often say that some of the most, you know, the most important eight words to consider and meditate on deeply are the opening lines of Schmitt's uh, Political Theology, Volume 1. Just the first line. Sovereign is he who decides on the exception. So you can have this legal framework, it can be put in place, it can be debated in public bodies that are ostensibly of international scope and scale, such as the United Nations. But the sovereign can just come up and say, that's fine for the rest of you, it doesn't apply to me. So I'm able to enact the state of exception thereby you find out who really wields sovereignty, at least in relation to this specific issue. So if that is the case, if this argument has some traction, what does it mean for regulation? What does it mean by exposing the limits of a regulatory paradigm, so recourse to the law, if you like, whether that's national state law, whether it's international law, etc. I would suggest that it means that ultimately it is limited. And if it's limited, then we need to consider that which is outside those limits. And I think this is where Luddism presents us with an interesting framework and set of considerations, because I think one of the important points to bear in mind is, and Dan has already mentioned this, that the Luddites, part of their strategy, and you know, we don't want to reduce the entirety of their strategy to this, but part of their strategy was to literally break machines so that literally we're talking about destruction of material infrastructure. And so one of the things I'm trying to grapple with now is the distinction between destruction of property and violence directed at person. And I take the view, and I don't know whether Dan agrees with this, but I take the view that Luddism is committed to the necessity under specific conditions of the destruction of property, but only contingently committed to violence directed at person. Wow. I mean, there is so much amazing stuff in there. This is what I love talking with the both of you, because I'm just getting chills through this entire conversation. And so many 
sparks are just flying in my brain right now. And I think that this is such an amazing point bringing up on the limits of regulation because, you know, it's, it's looking at interests. And I think as well, it speaks to how much people underestimate the power of AI with like nuclear weapons, superpowers lining up to really limit this. But people don't appreciate how powerful AI is to actually have the impetus to actually step up and stop these things. And I think another huge point that you brought up was like going back to this sort of tech washing and AI ethics. And something that most people don't think about is how AI is built by people. It is built with agendas. It is always put forward as like, no, 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 it is this wonderful neutral system. But of course, you know, the governments that support it, the corporations that support it do have their own agendas. So I guess for our listeners at home, Dan, could you get a little bit more into this concept of tech washing and walk us through it a little bit and how this plays out and the politics behind it? Uh, sure, I can try. Uh, I think, I mean, the term tech washing is both superficial and profound, I think, in the sense that um, there's a very clear dynamic that Mustafa laid out um, the beginning of, of what he was saying minutes ago, that you, you simply have to follow the money. You know, we're looking at established corporate power. Um, there's already there's kind of already alarm very broadly among sort of liberal circles that perhaps these corporations have already too much centralized influence on important aspects of life, economic political, you know, social, um, and also much more, you know, intimate matters of, of identity, uh, which I think is all true. Uh, but I think the the reason why, you know, myself and Mustafa were probably concentrating so much on the urgency of um, non-reformist uh, resistance and alternatives, and I think that's probably something we'll bring out more as we go along, um, you know, is because actually the situation is, is very profoundly bleak actually at the moment and that relates to what you were saying a minute ago about people not really seeing ai as a threat i think you know most of us right to bring out the autonomous weapons because that that sort of makes the threat immediate but in a way the concept of a targeting system and a targeting system whose net result is people dying is actually a pretty good paradigm for a lot of the the broader uh, introduction of ai which is literally invisible to most of us in terms of everyday life a particular focus of mine and, and interest of mine exactly because of this reason would be welfare systems you know it's it's a highly attractive technology to governments in, in any case it's a matter of sorting and ranking and targeting i mean these are all operations of bureaucratic government so it would at any time be be attractive in that way but it's particularly attractive you know under conditions of I don't know, posterity, post-austerity, ongoing crisis, where there are processes of scarcification going on, you know, that there are a deliberate limitation of resources, a deliberate redirection of resources away from people in need and towards, you know, sort of um, oligarchic class, if you like. So under those circumstances, AI becomes even more attractive and is being rolled out all over the place. And I think, you know, whereas a lot of the critique of ethics washing, would, people would be saying, perhaps, you know, well, we can clearly see you know, these systems are obviously still racist, they're classist, they're sexist, they're, you know, they're discriminatory in multiple dimensions. Um, 
they are often saying that in relation to perhaps, you know, um, almost a nostalgic wish to believe that there is some uh, even playing field, which this machinery is taking us away from. I think it's probably pretty clear that myself and my stuff would have a different um, sort of social historical perspective on what the current system is already doing. And this is where AI is so, to me, so dangerous. Yes, it will power autonomous weapons that kill people directly, but it's also powering many other systems of, particularly of government and, and institutional systems in general, that will also kill people. In fact, they're already killing people. You know, there are 120,000 extra deaths in the UK over a four-year period due to, to austerity, you know, due to all of the consequences, healthcare and living standards, everything else, people's ability to live. And this is where I think, for me personally, I'd identify AI as an essentially necropolitical technology. So again, we're talking about a sorting system, a ranking system, a comparing system, but one that's done under the conditions not simply of allocating goods, not simply of a perhaps unfair distribution of wealth, but of an almost open acknowledgement of the fact that the end result of this system, whether you're talking about welfare systems or border systems or um, health systems, you, you know, some people will be allowed to die. And we saw that under COVID, you know, some people will be allowed to die. And this also goes back very much to the roots of the mathematics of AI systems, and I'll, I'll wrap this up, but I just wanted to bring this, this aspect again, relating to the tech washing and, and, and all of the things that were said previously. This is why it's also quite important to be concrete about these technologies. The technology of AI, the form of mathematics used in it has its roots in eugenics. That is actually where um, a lot of the statistical regression, you know, the, 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 the uh, significance tests and correlation coefficients, these, peop these historical characters, Galt and Pearson and so on, they developed um, their mathematics to unmingle what they saw within the human species as the superior and the inferior. Uh, that was also massively connects with the things that Mustafa, you know, really brings out strongly in his work, the profoundly, deeply colonial and racial nature of all of these things. And what tech washing, I think, inadequately reflects is the sort of core process of AI, by which I mean real existing current technologies like in the main deep learning, also new transformer models of like GPT-3 and so forth, uh, also reinforcement learning. All of these technologies essentially make their reasoning, if you can call it that, extremely opaque. So what you're doing is at the same time as you're intensifying the social consequences of what institutional systems are doing, you're also making it extremely hard to even see what they're doing. You know, like you were just saying, it's, it's all attributed to some technical system, which we may not completely believe that it's it's um, entirely fair because people do have suspicions that, you know, what's going as input into these systems isn't really fair. After all, it comes from the society that we live in, but we've no way of actually revealing exactly what it's doing internally because actually these systems are genuinely, authentically, deeply opaque. And that has a, a further alarming consequences if you look at the kind of political developments which would like to target people, would like to um, perhaps essentialize that mode of targeting, which is another thing that this uh, inclusion exclusion process of machine learning does. It tends to uh, essentialize and attribute to the data subject, the particular problematic that it produces. So if we're talking about political solutions, we're talking about solutions that like to target, that like to essentialize and like to um, massively de-democratize the consequences of that, then we're talking some very dangerous political directions. I'd just like to add uh, one thing to what Dana has just said. And for me, this raises the interesting question as to whether computing, let's, let's generalize from AI to computing. And, and I'm talking about computing here in its 
dominant mainstream, if you like, hegemonic form. I'm not talking about, if you like, fringe computing or anti-computing or ethno-computing or even decolonial computing that's being done or practiced or attempted in, at the margins, peripheries, borders of the world system, but mainstream computing. And certainly in the kind of data-intensive, data-extractive, data-exploiting, uh, algorithm-heavy uh, sense that we find associated with technologies like machine come deep learning in its various uh, forms and permutations. So I'm talking specifically about that. To, to raise this question, whether those technologies, whether that computing has associated with it what some commentators have referred to as a colonizing impulse. In other words, is there an orientation dare I say, even an essence, and I know that's a dirty word for a lot of people who are so committed to kind of social constructivist, uh, you know, positions and, and um, uh, you know, frameworks, whether there is something literally embedded in the way the technology has been uh, developed, given that the technology is, you rightly pointed out, I think, Christopher, is created by human beings, we shouldn't, and we shouldn't ever forget that. Um, so there are entanglements of, you know, uh, positionality, so location, racialization, you know, there's class dimensions. There's so many uh, issues to consider when we understand that human beings are involved in the construction of these technologies. So I'm not trying to, you know, uh, render these technologies autonomous in some sense. I'm not committed to that at all. I'm, I'm essentially committed to, to a, something like a socio-technical reading the entanglement of the social, by which I mean the cultural, the political, the economic, and then some with the technical. But what if, and this is where I go back again to the Luddites and their opposition to machinery harmful to commonality, i.e. an opposition to a specific type of machinery rather than machinery per se, whether there might be a certain disposition, dare I say it, orientation, momentum, trajectory associated with contemporary, in quotes, machinery, the kind of machinery that Dan has been discussing, particularly when it becomes infrastructural and diffuse and pervasive, whether there's an orientation within that machinery that is itself colonizing. That is a really good question. And I also appreciate the idea that's been brought forward, you know, some of those technologies, like it's not even the technology that we're necessarily like acutely or explicitly aware of, but like this infrastructural technology that's underlying like this project that is modernity, some of the things that might have these like inherent coloniality? Yeah, the, the question that keeps arising for me, and, and I have discussed this recently with Dan and with some other um, fellow travelers, let's put it that way, um, is would it be possible to do something like a decolonized or decolonial AI if one was still committed to massive data sites, massive data extraction? So this is where I draw on you know, some fundamental insights of people like um, Ivan Illich in his seminal work from the 1970s, Tools for Conviviality. I mean, for me, one of the important insights that Illich presents us with in that work are questions of scale, balance, and limits. So if I was to pick up that thread, I would suggest that it is possible to do 
a non-colonial AI, but it's going to look radically different because I don't think you can go down the route of saying, yeah, there's no problem with mass uh, data extraction, the construction of huge data sets, server farms, data centers, maybe the entanglement with AI and the internet of things, so sensor technologies, et cetera. There's no problem with that. The, the real problem is just the social configuration. Once we nationalize the technology, once it's under the control of people, it will shift from a malevolent frame to a benevolent frame. And I'm just not so convinced by that. I am much more convinced by the argument that if there is going to be something like a people-centered, human-centered, non-colonial AI and or cognate technologies, it's going to require downsizing, downscaling. It's going to require limits. It's going to require balance. It's going to require uh, consideration of scale. And that's something I don't really hear discussed. I mean, when I read the literature, and there isn't a huge amount on decolonizing AI. I mean, there's, you know, cognate arguments like indigenous AI, black in AI, etc. But the question of scale seems to be completely absent. It's almost as if that's not a problem. We, of course, we need large scale systems. We just need to have people in charge of them rather than corporations. But okay, you might shift from malevolence to benevolence in that move. But who's to say that that shift is fixed and couldn't shift back from benevolent to malevolent? So I'm much more persuaded by the argument that we need to downscale. So this resonates with ideas I would suggest like degrowth, deindustrialization. And I'm, I'm not making an argument for primitivism here. I'm making an argument for working with limits, debating them through, trying to get the best science and political, economic and political, uh, ecological analysis of the question of limits, but at least putting the question of limits on the agenda. And I think that that is consistent with a Luddite orientation. I don't, I don't know what Dan thinks about that, but that's something I wanted to bring up. I'm so glad that you brought this up. And I think that scale limits working with, I mean, these are all such important themes. And um, in this last little bit, like you've said many times, like data extraction, like, yeah, we know we're talking about data extraction. But um, one of the things that I was hoping that we could maybe discuss a little bit now would be moving into kind of thinking about not just the data extraction, but how is this actually data extractivism as opposed to just extraction? Yeah, sure. I'll try to uh, have a start at that. I mean, I think um, I am very interested in uh, viewing the effects of AI through the lens of extractivism on quite a meta level in the sense that my understanding of the kind of extractivisms that you guys are talking about are, you know, sort of both sort of concrete and world system that you're talking about the actual extractivisms of, you know, ores from the ground or um, resources from the land but you're also talking about ways of life that destroy the basis of us being able to continue living, broadly speaking. And I think AI actually very much fits the bill for that. Now, one of the reasons it does that is, um, as many people have identified, you know, that, that it is based on data extractivism, or well, data extraction, let's say, let's work up to your extractivism. It's based on data extraction. It's based around labor extractivism. I think that's pretty clear. You know, it's based on however you want to call it, uh, ghost labor and uh, this kind of um, global, racialized, gendered division of labor, this reprecaritization. Um, I think these things are becoming increasingly clear. And, uh, and it is absolutely extractive in that sense. But I think uh, one of the commonalities here maybe is 
uh, a term that myself and Mustafa sometimes kick about, uh, which is sedimentation. I mean, when we're talking about extraction and extractivism as a mode of production, we're talking about, you know, largely things that are sedimented within the world. And I think data can be viewed that way as well, rather than viewed as an actual resource in itself. What it is, is the sedimentation of a particular set of social relations. And what we're talking about, if we want to change that, are, you know, restructuring um, those those social relations. So we you know we counter harmful machinery by um, challenging and sort of unlearning our dependency on the social structures and social relations that legitimate that machinery in the first place. That we have to have um, in the same way that AI has such a massive effect, not simply because it's a new nuclear technology, but because it it is so much uh, an amplifier of a stack of things that are already there, a stack of uh, racialized and colonial and power relations of capitalist power relations, neoliberal power relations, um, but also ways of exclusion, ways of enclosure, you know, really um, fundamental dimensions of the system that we currently live in, the things that they were very much built on. The idea of ex inclusion, exclusion, that's I think probably why myself and Mustafa both tend to reach for, as warning examples, the ideas of people like Carl Schmitt, who was a fascist legal philosopher, you know, who laid the ground for the, the, the sort of um, takeover of the, of the state by fascism, both sort of legally, if you like, or extra legally and ideologically, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, why those ideas are still so relevant, because the process of exception, enclosure, exclusion, which lie at the heart of a technology like AI in very concrete terms, I mean, really in very practical terms, are powerful, not just because of that, but because they are so, um, resonate so strongly with the deep, uh, structures, the you know the fundamental footings of the system that we currently live in, take and strip out in a way all of the ameliorating and mitigating social contracts that have ebbed and flowed in the intervening years between now and the Luddites, and take us back to a very raw capture of life and resources and and the dispensation of death with very little, uh, you know, for the very little reflection, uh, with a great amount of thoughtlessness, and so I think the. You know, the idea of um, trying to tackle that as extractivism is something that I haven't worked out at all, but it seems to speak so strongly to the central concerns of people whose, whose starting point for this wouldn't be AI at all, but would be, you know, the fossil fuel industry or Rio Tinto zinc or something like that. You know, that actually these things are all converging right now. They're converging because concretely, those very same processes are now being increasingly carried out with the aid of or through the processes of AI, but they're, they're converging because uh, it turns out that the, the, the mode of operating of those systems is exactly the same as the mode of operating of AI, and they are mutually reinforcing. And it's these feedback loops that are really accelerating right now, and why I think there's such a cause for alarm, that the, there's an acceleration between social structures, political structures, the operations of entrenched corporate power, not just in the technology industry, but in the fossil fuel industry, all of which are leading both to a, a sort of negative um, social politics and, and, and a basically suicidal climate politics. I'd just like to uh, add to that, that I think Dan has really nailed it by drawing attention to the idea of sedimentation. So we're talking about multiple layers of infrastructure. Um, whether we're starting with something like, I don't know, uh, maybe the telegraph, um, the electrical grid, 
you know, the water system. We could talk about the railways. We could talk about the roads. We could talk about, you know, ultimately the internet, the web, web 2.0, and various kind of uh, kind of cognate layers associated with more immediately um, so-called tech-centric developments associated with datification and algorithmization. I mean, it's really important to understand that so much of that infrastructure is so entangled with various stages of the colonial project. I mean, you have to think about, for example, the development of the railway network and the telegraph network in British India. And why was the railway network being laid down? It wasn't to, in quotes, develop the nation. It was to provide the infrastructural support necessary to enable extraction of cotton from India into the United Kingdom, specifically England. So, you know, there are direct enablers and entanglements that are colonial in nature with the rollout of various types of infrastructure. But I'd like to, again, bring this back to Luddism in terms of what is Luddism really about in terms of other modes of kind of resistance and, and opposition. So in my work, I try to develop a distinction between a commitment to, and I, incidentally, I commit to both of these positions, a commitment to abolition or abolitionism and Luddism. So by abolitionism, I take the view, and maybe this is a contested and, and reductive reading, but I take the view that abolition is really about attempting to roll back on something that has already taken place. So you're trying to abolish. Whereas Luddism, I take to have a much more presentist orientation. In other words, it's a mode of intervention at a time and in a place, and that time could be the contemporary moment, and that place could actually be the world system itself as a whole. But intervention in the present moment with a view to attempting to block or prevent or stop the rollout of yet another layer of infrastructure, which is contributing to either the maintenance of an extant colonial order or to enhance and expand it. So I really welcome the fact that Dan has already mentioned that, you know, there is a lot of emphasis on so-called data extractivism with different paradigms such as, you know, data colonialism, the work of people like Nick Cauldry and Ulysses Mahias, which I think is important. But I am quite wary about what I see as a kind of data centrism that keeps um, emerging in these discourses and that can obscure and occlude the materiality of what is at work and at play here. So, you know, Dan mentioning, uh, you know, whether we're talking about coltan mining in the Congo, whether we we're talking about lithium extraction in the Nevada desert, or the huge deposits, in fact, I think the largest in the world in South Bolivia, whether we're talking about that, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, labor extraction, whether it's ghost labor, ghost work, or whether it's um, a, a form of almost slavery that's taking place in, in you know, in, in China, in the assemblage of various uh, technological devices and, you know, um, uh, mobile and, and network communication systems that form part of this infrastructure. Getting real about the materiality of this and understanding this both in political economic terms, and for me, that means world systemic political economic terms, but also beyond that, thinking about political ecology. And this is where, for me, the work of somebody like uh, Alf Hornborg, the political ecologist at the University of Lund, is 
just of incredible importance because one of the things that Hornborg uh, draws attention to, and this was really very useful for me to kind of understand somebody is actually thinking about this, is that there's a tendency to think about the technology in terms of, well, you know, the internet, uh, you know, the cabling, the routers and that materiality. Um, but failing to understand the kind of symbolic component of uh, political ecology, which is money itself, as if you like the master technology, enabling capital to move and cluster at various centers in the world system in order to facilitate, in quotes, development and the production of the next layer of infrastructure. So, you know, I, I, I really like uh, this way of complicating the issue, because there's a tendency within, for example, left or Marxist political uh, uh, economic analysis to kind of downplay, if it's engaged with at all, the idea of, um, you know, technology as fetish, but the master fetish being money and its role as an enabler for uh, these kind of large scale projects. Wow. I mean, there's so much here and I feel like, I mean, I don't know, even maybe I like I study data extractivism and maybe I'm even a little bit overwhelmed here. So like, what do people do? Like, where's, where's the hope? Where's the resistance? Okay, maybe I can uh, attempt to begin answering that one. And I, I mean, I, I guess when I'm asked about this, I, I describe myself as a methodological dystopian. And it's important to take, uh, you know, a, a moment to reflect on the fact that I'm saying methodological dystopian rather than maybe metaphysical or ontological dystopian. I'm not suggesting the end game is inevitable, that the apocalyptic is in some sense uh, you know, essential or necessary. But where I go with this is essentially to try to present a worst case scenario. Think through the most pessimistic line of argument possible and use that as a prompt for what I call um, get real thinking. So just assume that if these kind of developments that we've been talking about thus far continue and not only do they continue with their current momentum but that possibly they accelerate where is that likely to go in terms of you know that the talos or the the kind of end of this project and i would suggest you know if if we've already talked about existential crisis or or threat of, of things like climate change but also uh, precaritization uh, necropolitics, um, you know, the, the rise of a kind of new eugenics embodied in technologies like AI or machine learning with its classificatory taxonomic ordering and sorting, etc. And also factoring in that when we think about this in terms of extractivism rather than extraction, so thinking about this in terms of a logic, a paradigm, uh, an orientation, that I want to present almost like a kind of Terminator 2 scenario as something that needs to be contemplated with a view to creating a sense of urgency about this. Because I think oftentimes, and this goes back to our earlier discussion about regulation, tech washing, 
the genealogy and the corporate entanglements of AI ethics discourse, etc. Sometimes I think that some commentators are too glib and smug, perhaps, to say that all of these fears, these apocalyptic fears, these doomsayers, you know, this is typical Luddite anti-technology uh, overstating of the case. The real problems are readily solved by various forms of, you know, policy, whether, you know, governmental or international, etc. That we can deal with this through the introduction of various regulatory and, uh, and related measures. And, you know, if, if the argument that Dan and I were presenting earlier has traction, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. So I guess what I'm trying to do in presenting what I call a methodologically dystopian perspective is try to create an understanding of a worst case scenario as a call to arms, a call to action. So I'm trying to do what could probably just best be described as a rhetorical work. I'm not claiming more than that. I mean, I, I sometimes put out provocations like, well, if Andreas Malm can write a book like How to Blow Up a Pipeline, who's going to write the book How to Drone Strike a Server Farm or a Data Center, assuming that means anything or makes sense in the context of a kind of Luddite response to these technologies. So I, I'm, I'm doing work of, I guess, provocation, uh, I'm not suggesting that Dan isn't doing provocative work. He absolutely is. Um, but it's a, a kind of rhetorical use of what I'm calling a methodologically dystopian orientation, because I want to be proven wrong. I, I, I desperately want people to say, no, 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 you see, you got it wrong. And I'll say, that's great. That's fantastic. But what if I have it right? What is that going to require? And now I'll hand over to, to Dan, I think. Thanks. Yeah, there's a great segue there. I think I'd like to talk about resistance as well. And I would like to segue from Mustafa's comments by mentioning the fact that I've tried to work through a lot of the ideas about possible alternatives you know, in a book uh, called Resisting AI, uh, which does spend the first half going into some of these darkest possibilities, which is kind of given away by the subtitle which is an anti-fascist approach to artificial intelligence. So I too am acknowledging in a rhetorical and non-rhetorical way, you know, the concrete dystopic possibilities that, that really don't seem too many steps away from right now. And I wrote the book exactly in part because actual fascist political currents are, I think, everywhere to be seen, small and large, micro-fascist and politically fascist. So um, I think it's, it's very urgent because dystopia is really closer than we'd like to imagine. Uh, we're constantly being reminded about in the news headlines, but 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 entirely with the focus, as Mustafa was also saying, of of saying, well, you know, what is the alternative? What is the resistance? Or what is the possible mode of change? And I think that the possible mode of change there is 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 vital to talk about, you know, as broadly as we talk about the, the downsides. I mean, one of the other things that um, I think both myself and Mustafa are trying to escape is the the critique only approach of of, of a lot of academia. You know, it's very easy to see actually the entrails of um, oppression and repression, pretty much every aspect of society, you know, if one cares to spend the time looking, which is what, you know, we have the luxury of being able to do sometimes. What is not so clear, and I think also not so visible from the academy, is the um, actual, real, immediate to hand possibilities for resisting that, because the Luddism is a very particular one, it's very handy for us, because 
It's a technopolitics. But there are and always have been and are right now always many examples of the fact that because the entire system, however overwhelming it appears, you know, I, I'm just reinforcing what Mustafa was saying, really. However overwhelming it appears, however dark the real possibilities, and however crushing the, the sort of um, momentum of history seems to be, at the end of the day, it is nothing without us. You know, it is ordinary people who do all the productive work, all the care work that underpins all the productive work, all of the actual reproduction of the system on a day-to-day -day basis. And it is in the hands of people themselves to, to rearrange, to restructure, to resist, to, to, to break what's going on and to forge alternatives. And it has to start from, as Mustafa was also saying, you know, in some ways it has to, to start mostly small. You know, it starts with the everyday relations of our lives and works up from there. It also starts with the activities of concern of, of campaigns and social movements about particular injustices and works up from there. And I think that's where the real resistance to, well, definitely to AI, and perhaps to a lot of the, the sort of broader extractivism we've talked about, you know, is rooted in the particular situations of people needing to address their context and their relations with others directly without those forms of mediation that are simply going to essentially lie to them and kick the can down the road so that the uh, extractivisms and the oppressions can continue. And I think the, the kind of alternatives that I'd be looking for you know, be ones that that recognize the existence of a system like AI. I'm taking that as my paradigm. A system like AI is is, is built on, it's, it's, it's a large apparatus. It is, um, at one end of it, very technical, you know, very mathematical. You know, it's highly computational, computationally intensive. It relies on data, as we've discussed quite a lot. But in the same way, as sort of Foucault's ideas of, of an assemblage is built on all of the interlocking ideas around sort of laws and ideologies, philosophies of life, um, social structures, social norms, um, you know, gender norms, all of the interlocking uh, attributes of our society is, is absolutely built on those, reinforces those, weaponizes those. And we restructure by tackling all of those things, not all at once or all in the same place, but by doing a structural renewal of our fundamental social relations. I mean, I try in the book to, to take a similarly layered or, or a sort of um, interdependent approach to that by, by looking at... I think uh, Sophia mentioned you know, modernism a bit earlier on, you know, looking at uh, alternative epistemologies. I think I do that partly because AI is so built its legitimacy on science or scientific ideas that to look at really perhaps what are, again, the neglected, marginalized ideas of perspectives on science, which actually suggest that really scientific ontology strongly proposes the idea that we are in our very beings, fundamentally inseparable, in fact, co-constituting. So if we take that seriously, then we should take seriously the idea that concepts like solidarity and mutual aid are not lifestyle choices or marginal, you know, forgotten historical modalities, but actually uh, alternative paradigms for uh, living, a living that starts from care for each other. And of course, it's fine to say, and it make, makes like a nice philosophy. So it's equally important, and I also tried to do that, of talking about what practical self-organizational structures might put that into practice. And, I, and again, you know, we have many, many examples actually in computing, in the history of computing, and of course, in the history of societies in general, of these modes of, of sort of collective social resistance to um, unacceptable levels of harm. And they take many forms. But I think we forget where what I would call the sort of echoes that we're left with of, of sort of suffrage and representational politics or um, even the sort of marginal existence of trade unions these days. We forget where they really came from, which is the, you know, the self-organized, self-constituting collective response of ordinary working people of ordinary communities to, re to refuse, to reject 
and to to reach for alternative ways of um, ordering our lives for the better, ones that don't leave people to be expendable, uh, dispensable, or literally thrown overboard. And I think that makes it a very different prospect. You know, that it seems to be a massively overwhelming tower of unreachable complexity and um, unbearable historical momentum, but actually it is founded on a fundamental um, a fundamental continuity of deluding us that we are not actually at the root of everything, and we are. Ordinary people are the basis of everything in the system, and ordinary people can change it. Wow. I mean, there is there's so much in there, and you know, it does give hope in that, and that I think is one of the most important things, and seeing the the agency that we have as people, as individuals, as groups to be able to impact these things, because it really does seem, and I think a big part of the whole project around uh, how this has become embedded in our lives is to make it seem like we can't because it's just sort of there. Now, unfortunately, we we know that uh, both of you have to uh, be getting about your day because we would love to just keep talking about this all day long. <laughs> but we we know that you have other work to get to, and we're really grateful for the time that you've spent with us. And we really do hope that you can come back and we can dive more into these things because, you know, again, I'm, I've been getting chills throughout this entire conversation, and so many things are popping into my mind to bring up more. But um, I think it might be time for something. What do you mean? There's something that we do at the end of every episode. Oh my God, are we going to have milkshakes? Well, I mean, that's for later. I mean, the virtual milkshakes, yes. But I was thinking more... Wait, I know, I know. What? Are you going to ask? I think I will. Is it a... Question. Question. I believe it is. Question time. So... For all of our listeners at home, uh, we always like to end up every episode with the question, which is sort of a, a call to action. After hearing this amazing, at points terrifying, at points hopeful conversation, uh, and thinking specifically, you know, looking at these ideas of alternatives and resistance, what can our listeners at home do to enact something from this conversation? For my part, I think one of the... I think one of the most important things that people can do is to maybe do some historical research. Um, And as I think both Dan and I intimated earlier, it's getting easier now because the history of the Luddites, Luddism as an orientation is starting to bubble up again into prominence. It never went away. It was always there. But sometimes it was a kind of peripheralized discourse. Now it's starting to kind of push its way back into uh, closer to the center, at least for some uh, commentators and for some people. And I think if if your listeners could, um, you know, just look into the history of what happened. I mean, I think Dan has made a really good point earlier that it was actually a very small window within which the Luddites attempted to make their intervention. But the the onslaught of repression, oppression, you know, with executions, with exile, with, you know, the uh, army being brought in to uh, put down the Luddite revolt. I mean, to my mind, this is an indication of the scale of the issues that were on the table in the sense that, that you know, the magnitude of concerns. And 
I, I would suggest that if people could at least gain some sense of, if you like, the weight of that moment of history, and then think about it in relation to the weight of the moment of history that we find ourselves in. I mean, I, I think Dan has made the case earlier really well about that, that, you know, for them, it was the introduction of the factory system, uh, industrialization, and what I would suggest is the logic of industrialism, which has rolled out everywhere. I mean, let's remember that we're not just talking here about, you know, the mode of production of commodities. We're talking about everything having the word industry either attached to it as a prefix or as a suffix. I mean, whether we're talking about the food industry, the clothing industry, the culture industry, the music industry, it's just diffuse. So this is a logic I would suggest that has just become pervasive. It may have a Western site of enunciation initially, but it's rolled out to the world system. So if people could gain an understanding of that we are actually dealing with a structuring logic here and you know, gain a sense of the magnitude of the challenge, at least for my part, I, I think that this provides a very good prompt for then thinking about what needs to be done. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I also 100% echo what Mustafa was saying. Uh, I think my call, simplest call to action would be simply to join with others in some way. I think uh, I find that ideas of critical pedagogy, which I also know that Mustafa finds to be very useful as well, which is people joining together to examine, you know, the questions of their own uh, situation and what needs to be, what needs to be questioned and working their way to practical, you know, in-process answers to their most pressing questions. That's really the fundamental mechanism. I think there is um, always and everywhere the opportunity for a collective challenge to these um, dystopic forces, because as Christopher was saying, you know, their, their greatest power is actually their instantiation us the belief that there is no alternative. I think um, there's plenty of examples. I mean, I'm at, at the moment I've been doing, and, and there's something that I included in the book was just to look at the the solidarity economies of of Central and Latin America, where people under conditions that we are now rapidly approaching, unfortunately, of essentially military dictatorship or fascist government, um, absolute lack of civil liberties, absolute um, precaritization um, and and uh, expendability still manage to form themselves into co cooperative collective uh, solution structures for their own needs, housing and and their, 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 their needs of daily life. Uh, they did that under these incredibly difficult conditions. They did it through cooperating and caring for each other, but cooperating and caring for each other with a commitment to, to a wider change, with a commitment to um, systemic change and I, and I think that resisting AI which is such a abstractive reductive you know um, mathematical and computational technology in its most obvious form um, the, the counter to AI is, is is really a matter of care is about care itself so I think um, that care in particular coming from as myself and myself are so often invoked, invoked in this conversation I think the state of exception we should be asking what is this, you know, what is the, not even the inclusion, but what is in common? Coming back to, as most of us said, that central slogan of the Luddites, which if people should go and check out the original letter that was written in, because it's 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 a fiery letter by the Luddites. But, you know, they wanted to put down all machinery hurtful to the commonality because it is the commonality that is the, you know, that, that is the core of an alternative possibility. So 
to invert the state of exception. We're asked, you know, that coming together to ask what we can do, um, what we can have, or, or even what we can be in common. Maybe just to add one thing to what Dan has said uh, in relation to the state of exception and, and what I tried to convey earlier about that in relation to regulation and it's the limits of regulation is getting our listeners to, and, and Dan has made this point when he made reference to, if you like, critical pedagogy, getting our listeners to think about the limits of what is allowed in terms of thought and action. I mean, earlier I made reference to the distinction between destruction of machinery, i.e. property, if we want to think about it in those terms, and violence towards person. I mean, I would suggest that certainly in liberal or so-called liberal democracies, which I would suggest are really plutocracies, if not straight up uh, oligarchies, um, what you're dealing with there is a discourse that has uh, constrained, and this goes back to Weber and others, has constrained the sphere of violence to be only legally um, exercised by the state apparatus. You know, it's the famous line, uh, the state is that which has a, a legitimate monopoly on the exercise or, or use of violence. Okay, so I think part of our kind of critical apparatus needs to be the preparedness to go back to revisit the question of property, its sanctity under the liberal uh, democratic, what I would call racial industrialized capitalist order, uh, the question of violence, who gets to exercise it, when should it be exercised, under what conditions, can it be exercised, what would it mean to exercise violence and uh, you know the destruction of property. And, again, to think through questions of progress, development, uh, limits, scale, balance. In other words, to kind of go back and interrogate our lexicon, our received language game in which we operate, and to try to develop a kind of reflexive position whereby we, you know, we ask the question, well, okay, Weber might have talked about the iron cage of modernity, but one of the good things about being in a cage is at least you know that there are gaps between the bars. So what are those gaps? Um, what, do, what do those gaps point to? That which is outside of this discourse. Um, and this is not a call to embrace violence or to uh, romanticize about violence in some kind of you know undirected uh, manner, but rather to get us to kind of put back on uh, the table for consideration, the question of property, the question of violence, the question of destruction, and the question of how our ability to question has been circumscribed by so much, uh, what can only be described as, I guess, social conditioning through the exercise of power uh, in you know, education, uh, media, enculturation, etc. That is such an amazing answer to the question. Thank you both for covering such fertile ground and giving our listeners a lot of really good food for thought. And um, especially that thinking about the gaps in the bars of the cage of modernity. Ooh, like I said, just like uh, what a what a poignant image. 
So for our listeners, if they want to engage with you more, I've heard a rumor that you're both on Twitter. Um, So we'll put a link to your Twitter handles down in the show notes, in addition uh, to a link to both of your academic profiles. And of course, for all of our listeners who um, are not really excited to go out and find Dan's book, we will be putting appropriate links to get you hooked up to where you can read that. Thank you both so much. I'm really excited to read the book, uh, Resisting AI, an Anti-Fascist Approach to Artificial Intelligence. I mean, just the title alone, I'm, I'm, I'm already hooked in there. Beyond wanting to get it myself, I've also requested that the university library pick it up too. So um, yeah, everyone get out there and read it. And we definitely want you both to come back at some point in the future, uh, expand on so many of these ideas and you know, just, yeah, hopefully uh, keep the conversation and some collaboration going. Thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, thanks very much. And, and I really think there's uh, you know, there's still a lot of fertile ground, whether it's a conversation with us or, but I think more broadly, really just to to reiterate how much the the agenda around extractivism, you know, which may start in a very different set of concerns overtly or a very different focus is, is massively overlaps with the kind of work that, that I think me and Mustafa are trying to do around uh, technologies and society. I couldn't agree more. Great closing words. Thank you so much for joining us. And we really look forward to having you back on the podcast in the future. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. A huge thank you again to Syed Mustafa Ali and Dan McQuillan for that thought-provoking and fascinating conversation. Make sure to check out Dan's book, Resisting AI, an Anti-Fascist Approach to Artificial Intelligence from Bristol University Press. Please join us next month when we're going to be talking with Sergio Sauer about social movements, rural development, and extractivism. From the bright blue skies and lush flowers of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sophia Hagelani-Elbab, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.